you were, you, you were saying comic books. Yeah, comic books. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the bin. How far are you from uh, Cleveland? Uh, about two and a half hours. Because oh, I just had on the uh, on HBO, they had the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductions. Mm, right. So I started thinking, huh, that would be interesting to be there one day. <laughs> anyway, let's uh, let's bring this thing in and. Work from there. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro, and I'm joined today by my good friend, Professor Alan Middleton. Former intern, now Former full intern. professor of comics, Alan and, 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 and I actually said good friend. <laughs> I know. What is going on? <laughs> you were you were really desperate to get someone on this show with you, or it would have been you talking to yourself for an hour and a half. Yeah, I think I'm Which I'm, I'm sure you I, could I, pull I off, but... Or something. <laughs> yeah, well, I lost uh, we lost Scott today because he's having some computer issues, and we lost Bill to a very busy work schedule. And you'll see as these come out, I think there's three out of four episodes that we miss we miss out on Bill with, which is unlike him. It, it 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 has been nice to hear Scott again regularly on the show. Yeah, he, well, he's been making a concerted effort to uh, to you know to make himself available for at least for this show. Because Two True Freaks proper hasn't been going anywhere lately. But he, he has been making the effort to be here, and it has been kind of cool to have him on Fortunately, early. Two True Freaks improper is still going strong. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, the inmates are running the asylum. <laughs> so I threw out the call yet last night because uh, that's when I found out I didn't have anybody to work with today. And Professor Allen immediately... Uh, picked up the call and, and ran with it. And we were going to have uh, Jim Dietz on again. So it would have been a reunion of a show from a little over a year ago when the three of us were together. Uh, but Jim at the last minute ended up with a family emergency and had to bail on us. So I'm sorry that we don't have him, but we'll get him in another day soon. Yeah, Cause I was, you know, got that Facebook post from you and I just thought I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. I got nothing else. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> love, it, love it when you guys make it easy, because otherwise I'm... you are failing. Where I put in my new, my our newest, uh, <laughs> our newest soundbite. <laughs> so, what do you, what have you been reading lately, Al? I've been reading a little bit of everything, old stuff, new stuff. My the most exciting thing that I've discovered, I guess, is I finally. Checked into the Digital Comics Museum. That's digital the Comics uh, Museum. Oh, yes. the, the, uh, yeah, the digital uh, public domain. Yeah, Luke Giaconetti kind of turned me on to that a couple of months ago, and I started looking at it, and then I, I you know, a, a squirrel went by, and that was it. <laughs> well, what have you been got a, Yeah, I've got a, I've got a Barnes and Noble Nook, and you know that that machine is they're no longer selling it, they're no longer supporting it not selling any apps for it. So I thought, you know, I've got this thing. I might as well I'm, – I'm just going to run it run it into the ground. So I loaded it up with as much stuff as I could from there and read it for a few months and load it up with as much more stuff as I can from there. Because uh, I, I, I just I'm, – I'm, I'm not one to sit and read on my screen, but, right. reading, but reading off of a tablet 
type of device can work for me. So, so far I'm hitting 1950 sci-fi stuff like uh, space detective. Here's the pitch, Paul. <laughs> Go it's ahead. A detective in space. You know, I never would have gotten that from the title. That's amazing. <laughs> but there's also, you know, on there some early Captain, uh, some of the early Captain Marvel. You know, some, mm-hmm. some of the Fawcett stuff is in is in uh, public domain. Some Blue Beetle, some early stuff like that. But for me, uh, that, that my my first batch was a lot of that that sci-fi stuff. Right. Well, you know, it's it's funny when you you know, basically, I guess you're still talking, even though it's 50s, you're still really talking Golden Age. Right. So I think the 40s and 50s encompass the Golden so. Age, yeah. or at least until you got uh, Showcase Number Four, which was. Was that 58, 59? Yeah, somewhere in that. In that somewhere around there. Yeah. Uh, and, and I do find, though, I'm very, very hit and miss on those stories when I do go to read them. Some of them sure. flow very easily, and, and I read them, and I enjoy them. And surprising, it, it's almost surprising because they really were aimed at young kids back then, and yet I find some of them are a real slug to read. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, like I feel like I'm not smart enough to read them, even though they're, they're aimed at a bunch of younger audience. So, I mean, well, maybe I'm not smart enough. I don't know. But, but I, but I really like the the science fiction short stories and novels from that era. You know, that's your Asimov and Bradbury, sort of your first yeah. wave of science fiction novelists. And so, a lot of the the comics, sci-fi comics, sort of had that same sort of adventurous type of spirit. I'm just thinking aloud now, and maybe this doesn't make any sense, but I'm thinking maybe one of the reasons that some of that early stuff is more difficult to read, and not not from a an intellectual point of view of actually reading it, obviously, but maybe from a digesting it point of view, because I think there's a lot of stuff back then that they just wanted you to make leaps of faith on, and I think we've gotten so used to reading these books and wanting explanations for how things are occurring, that sometimes when they just have things occur willy-nilly, right. you're saying, sure. no, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. How could sure. that happen? Yeah. Which I think people didn't do as much back then. I think you know, I think our, our reading style has become more sophisticated, or at least I like to think so. Right. And and I think that may be what makes it a little harder to digest things that don't give us that explanation. Mm-hmm. Even even if it's Isn't Stan Lee-type science, you know, I, th- I right. think he generally did, <laughs> generally did give us at least some explanation for things, although... I do hit on some in the story I'm going to cover today where he just it's not exactly yeah. just take just take this and run with it. <laughs> and an, so, another thing I've been I've been enjoying is finding in, in particular one store that has some of course quarter bins that I've had fun looking through picking up old I'm thinking 70s mostly maybe late 60s some of the humor books some of the Donald Duck sad sack. I used to uh, love Archie's, so things like that. Idea. And what I found with the humor books, basically, is that if I'm if I pick one up from the 80s or 90s, it's not going to be as funny as one from the 70s and and, and 60s. You know, the Bugs Bunnies, the Walt Disney's. Um, I, th- I think the some audience of that stuff is some of that stuff is really pretty good. I think the audience started to dwindle in the 80s, and they started kind of effectively think, yeah. mailing it in. I, that 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 seems as reasonable an explanation as anything, but um, or or putting their lesser talents on yeah it. I, yeah probably yeah yeah I don't, I don't i don't want i don't necessarily want to say that people weren't trying no uh, but but maybe they you know people just breaking into the business uh you know they, they could get away with it a little cheaper yeah but probably. and and again I, I haven't read a lot of that stuff since i'm a kid i don't i really don't remember the last time i read sad sack or richie rich or anything along right. those lines but when i was eight nine years old i loved that stuff yeah what about new stuff you reading that digitally or are you 
actually uh, not yet. Not yet. I'm still I'm still reading paper and old uh, good old paper. And at this point, it's as of right now, it's three books that we're getting new, uh, and they're all about to be rebirthed at DC. They're all DCs. Um, but I read it. I read a lot through uh, through trades um, through the library. So yeah, mine might be I, six, I, six I find months. Yeah, you know, might be stuff. yeah six months or a year behind uh, on yeah, stuff. When, when I, I hear right now, I'm not picking up anything new. Mm-hmm. And when I when I hear people talk about you know oh this is a good series, a lot of times I'll wait like you say six months to a year, right. and then I'll look in the library. We have one one local library that has an excellent graphic novel section. So I, I'll, I'll go look for it there. And, and the nice thing is they do have an, a unified system. And, uh, you know, I can look in my library and then just do a, a global search of all of Nassau right. County. Right. And if they have it in another branch, I could just request it and they'll send right. it over. Okay. So uh, I'm just looking, thinking about, like, I was looking into what's coming out now, you know, recently. And, uh, like, I'm seeing, what, what do they call it? Like the Totally Radical Hulk or something like that. It's, that's that's not what they're calling it, but right. it's something something equally silly. <laughs> and it's now, uh, what's his name? Uh, Amadeus Cho is the Hulk. Okay, okay, okay. Trying something new. Yeah, I guess. I guess, you know, after 50 years, they kind of run out of, uh, they come kind of run out of some ideas, but. I don't know. That doesn't does just doesn't do it for me. I've enjoyed so. I've I on the Marvel side I've enjoyed some of the some of the female led books. We like uh, Ms. Marvel. That, Kamala that was Khan, Ms. what Marvel. I did read of that was entertaining. Yeah, we liked uh, I liked Silk. I haven't read that. And uh, just recently read the new Hellcat, Patsy Walker Hellcat, and that's a all ages book. So there's some silliness to it, and the art's got a silly feel to it. But it's a very fun read. Those those are very hit and miss with me. It depends on how well yep. they're written, yep. you know. I mean, I, I mean, I guess that that's the same for every book. It depends <laughs> on how well it's written, but they have to be a little bit better written. If those go wrong, they go real wrong. Exactly. But, but it, you know, lately my my bent has been, you know, which is perfect for the person who's hosting the show. I'm enjoying <laughs> older comics. Absolutely. And I, you know, I I, I have a Microsoft Surface, so. I do find that's very, very a very convenient way to read them. You know, you, you can carry around a lot of books with you in a very small small space. So might as well jump into the book I brought with us today. And we're going pretty far back to May of 1967. And when I, picked... I saw the 12-cent cover price, I was proud of you, Paul. Proud of you. <laughs> it went for 12 cents. It was Tales to Astonish number 91. And uh, it was the on-sale date, as as uh, provided by Mike's Amazing World, was February 14th, 1967. So I would have been all of four years old when this came out. And uh, I, I didn't buy this new off the newsstand. I did not have the 12 cents it would have taken. But if, if the, you know, most, most of you will remember, this is when the Hulk and the Submariner shared the book. And uh, they each, you know, they would each have like an 11 page, 10, 11 page story. And I'm just going to cover the Hulk issue for this particular episode. And the cover by Gil Kane, which is just incredibly Gil Kane-ish, shows the Hulk and the Abomination squaring off against each other with the words, Whosoever Harms the Hulk, which is also the title of our story. The credits are Stan Lee Writer, Gil Kane Art, letters by Artie Simic, and that's it. Now, the story picks up right where the previous one left off. But you wouldn't know that because unless you've read those. So I'll tell you that previously on the Hulk, the otherworldly cosmic being known as the Stranger 
decided to use the Hulk as his instrument of destruction to cleanse the earth of mankind. But when the Hulk reverted to Bruce Banner, he was released from the stranger's thrall. Meanwhile, a spy subjected himself to a dose of gamma radiation in excess of what Banner was exposed to from the gamma bomb and turns himself into the abomination. He battles and quickly dispatches the Hulk and takes Betty Ross as a hostage and leaves, leaving a presumed dead Hulk with an apoplectic General Ross and General Tablet. Ta- Talbot. <laughs> and that's how our story, that's where our story picks up. The general has the Hulk's body moved into Bruce Banner's lab, where it's determined that he is in fact still alive, but weakening. Rick Jones battles his way into the lab and tells them that the Hulk needs to be revived using gamma electrodes. That does the trick, and after dealing with his I just woke up and haven't had a cup of coffee yet grumpiness, Rick is able to get through to him and calms him down, at which point he reverses to reverts to Bruce Banner. Banner shows some balls taking charge of the situation using a weapon he created using science to lure the Abomination back to the base. Once he's arrived, Banner uses more science to sap the Abomination of his strength. But the excitement gets to Bruce and he turns back into the Hulk. Once he changes, he destroys the machine that he's using against the Abomination, saying that he doesn't need no stinking machine, which releases the Abomination. The two wordlessly battle in a pretty cool sequence of panels, and that catches the attention of the Stranger. Remember him, the otherworldly dude? Stranger is apparently subject to a to very rash decision-making and decides that if the Hulk can be so valorous, then there is hope for the rest of humanity. So he quickly gives up on his plan to destroy all of humanity. So instead, he takes the Abomination with him to his otherworldly base to serve his purposes, whatever they are. And with the Abomination gone, the Hulk walks away to whatever awaits him next and cue the Lonely Man theme. Exactly. <laughs> that, that, that last panel is custom made for the TV show. Yeah, absolutely. But except it's the Hulk wa- wa- walking yeah, exactly. off instead of Bruce Banner. <laughs> that's the only, the only aspect of it that's a little different. But I remember I first read this one in its reprint, which was... The reprint magazine was called Marvel Superheroes, which pretty much reprinted them in the same way. Hulk and Submariner, half the book each. And I th- I'm pretty sure it was the first I ever saw of The Abomination. But then somewhere around that same time, I also got the uh, Power Records, which had The Abomination and the Rhino fight- fighting the Hulk. So I became, you know, pretty much a, a, an Abomination expert at that point. <laughs> but I, I liked the character and then having, you know, knowing ha- where he came from and all was, was pretty cool. The thing about this story that just leaps out that I, I think it's impossible to read the story without walking away with is the stylistic nature of the Gil Kane art. Yes, from, uh, from the cover on on through. Every single panel, every single one of them. Now it's it's a little loosely inked. I think it could it could stand to have a little tighter inks on it. But the thing about it that just I, I'm as best as I can describe it is just that it's loaded with raw energy. Mm-hmm. Every everything about it just screams power and stress and this you know every everybody looks distressed and and every every time somebody throws a punch you know you just you can feel the the action and everything so what what it lacks in realism or detail it more than makes up for in i'm trying to think of better the best word for it but just stylisticness i don't know <laughs> yeah that it, it there's an energy to it there's a forward momentum to the story, mm-hmm. both uh, the plotting, but also the 
also the art that's moving it forward. And like you say, the I think the expressions are are a real strength, both on the you got the general Rick and and, and even the Hulk uh, is very demonstrative in some of his some of his uh, his expressions. Various levels of anger. <laughs> yeah, are, pretty much are, are are conveyed. And and the interesting thing is now that in the previous issue, the Abomination made quick work of the Hulk and left him, you know, I guess near death. In this one, their battle is is less than a full page. It's it's four panels, but the four panels do yeah they are, are very well choreographed. Yeah. But then the stranger intervenes and just takes the Abomination away. So he he's maintained as a potential serious threat to the Hulk that's as strong as the Hulk, or if not stronger. Right. So, you know, when you get around to using him again, it's not like, okay, we diminished him already by having the Hulk defeat him, because the Hulk really didn't defeat him. And and in, in reading just this story, that is, it's kind of a deflating ending, if you just take this story as it is. Mm-hmm. If you think of it in the context of, oh, this is awesome, they saved the Abomination to use him later. Yeah. But you also don't get the 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 treat, the thrill of the hero defeating the villain. Yeah. You get, you get the third party. Well, you 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 kind of it's a little bit of a tease, but you kind of get the best of both worlds because it looks as if the Hulk is is going to defeat him. Right. I mean, it, it's it's to me it's pretty incredible cuz the battle scene, the actual battle scene is four panels long. And that just kind of gives you the the power of of Gil Kane's artwork in this that it really conveys you know like a knockdown dragout fight in just mm-hmm. four panels. Uh, but in in those four panels, let's see, the first one is the Hulk basically delivering an uppercut, sending the Abomination flying. That second would, one looks like he's that giving him an, wait, wait, that 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 first one is a zock. Yeah, that's a zock. The second one's a spoof <laughs> with the Hulk delivering, I guess, an overhand right. Then a Batum. Uh, the Batum, which is, looks to be the same Left, thing, only from yeah. another angle. <laughs> and then the fourth panel, he sends the the uh, abomination barracking through a wall. <laughs> Without, and we didn't even have Obama back then, but we still had a barack. <laughs> that's it. Four four panels, and the entire fight is conveyed, and then that's when the stranger intervenes. But in those four panels, the Hulk has the upper hand in all of them. True, that's true. And the and those four panels were built up to. You know, the sense of the threat level was portrayed earlier in the story. So even though you had this conclusion of the fight, this action sequence that came and went pretty quickly, the the sense of building up to that uh, made us know how powerful the abomination was. Yeah. Even, even if we're just reading this issue independent of the prior one or what we know since. Now, this this is another example of compressed storytelling because an awful lot happens here in, yes. in 10 pages of story. Yeah. I mean, the, you go from the Hulk being near death to being revived, which that could be two issues by itself. Then, you know, he, he wakes up and he's, you know, fit to be tied and he has to be calmed down by Rick Jones. That certainly could be an issue by itself. <laughs> then then Bruce Banner takes over the Gamma base and, and puts his plan into effect then he lures the abomination in and has him, you know, weakening until he turns into the Hulk. Then he battles the abomination. Then the stranger takes him. This ten, this ten pages could easily be a six, six issue yeah. miniseries. Yeah. <laughs> I love the page where, when he's transforming for the from the Hulk into Banner, and Rick Jones is grabbing onto his big green foot, 
and he's being dragged along. That by itself is a nice panel where he's being dragged. And yeah. then over a couple of pages, he over, over a couple of panels, he turns back into Banner and is, uh, Rick, what are you doing grabbing onto my leg? Get up, boy. What are you doing? <laughs> and and Rick's actually been able to talk him into the transformation. Yeah, which I thought, it's, it's, which, it's which pretty, I thought was an interesting interesting way to go with that. So I'm not sure. At, I'm not sure at this help. point. Yeah, who who has control of the transformation exactly? Sort of how that how that's working. I, the transformation both to and from. As I recall, at this point, nobody had control. Right. Bruce Banner couldn't help when he turned into the Hulk, and the Hulk couldn't help when he turned back into Bruce Banner. Mm-hmm. It just would happen. You know, if he got excited, he turned into the Hulk, and when he calmed down, he turned, he turned into Bruce Banner. But there was yeah, no yeah, conscious decision-making yeah, to yeah, do here, that. Here at one point, he's worried something's going wrong and his blood pressure's going up. Uh-oh, I think I'm going to turn again! And, and you know, that was enough to do it. Yeah. This is, you know, again, I, I had bought this one in its reprint, which probably came out, I'm guessing, around 1975, 1974, around there. And uh, it was one of my favorites back then. And revisiting it now, it hasn't it it hasn't lost anything to time, <laughs> you know. And, and that that's that's a nice Some, feeling. Yeah, that doesn't always happen. That does not always happen, does it? It, it? it it really is a shame when you pick up one that you you know that's a beloved story from when you're a kid and you reread it and you're like, what the hell was I thinking? How that dumb was, was I when I was 11? Crap. Wow. <laughs> or how dumb was I when I was 23? <laughs> how dumb was I when I was 43? <laughs> Yeah. But this, yeah. it, and and it, it's it's a very clean ending because they're ready to go anywhere for the right. story at this point too. Yep. I don't I don't remember where where it turns to at this point after this. I'd have to read on. Although I have read all these issues. Uh, when when they were doing these eleven page stories, were they often you know, two parters like this? You know, where you would it, to some extent get a full story sort of or what what we would think of as a full story sort of cut in half. Uh. Or, Frequently or they would do that, but they, but they would also run them longer sometimes as well. Sometimes you'd have three issues. You know, it, it's it, very rare that you had a one-issue, ten-page story done. And but uh, you know, sometimes they would run longer. I remember, I'm just thinking offhand. I remember Captain America. They did a uh, a thing with the sleeper, the Nazi mm, sleeper right. robots, and that that if I, I seem to remember that lasting like five or six issues. Uh, now I could I could be wrong on that. My memory could be faulty. I'm working off the top of my head here, but I seem to remember it being that. And uh, and I'm guessing that Stan was enough of a wily veteran that if you get an issue like this where the Hulk story comes to an end, that the uh, Namor story has a definite to be continued. I, I'm I would not imagine sure more. that you would end. I seriously doubt if they would ever end both stories definitively in the same issue. <laughs> yeah, I, I would. You got to keep them coming back. I would think you're correct on that. I don't have I, – again, I don't have the data in front of me, but I I think it's a, it's a pretty safe bet. <laughs> be interesting to, to check that out, to sit there issue by issue and go through and look. But, it, you know, they, they generally had a, had a running narrative on most of them. And, the, and like I said, that, that lent itself to, uh, you know, this 10-page format I think really lent itself to that. And I would imagine it was a very exciting time because it wasn't much longer after this, less than a year later, that they went – to split them up and become separate series. Right. And, and that was, you know, basically six, six new series to replace the three split books. Were they still under the distribution limitations at this point? Do you know, I think that's when they came yeah. exactly when they came out of those right. limitations. So you, you got a separate Hulk and Submariner, Iron Man, Captain America, 
S.H.I.E.L.D. and Doctor Strange. And what was interesting, though, was in each of those cases, there was one of the two the two books that kept the numbering from the original right, parent exactly. series. Yeah, that, that was back when, well, when you're going through the, the newsstand distribution, they're not going to take a chance on something that's numbered one if they don't have to. Yeah, exactly. If it had a high number, it was more respected. Well, it's proof that it's – if you're going to sell issue 317, that's de facto proof that the first 316 sold. Yeah. I, I would think from a marketing point of view that that holds holds well. Mm-hmm. You know, more of an issue with regard to uh, you know just scaring off readers, I guess, yeah. when when the numbers were too high. Right. Yeah, but uh, but fl- flipping through this, you definitely get some 1960s ish. I'm looking at some panels where I'm not exaggerating. Almost half of the panel is a word balloon of, of some kind. Well, there's so many word balloons, and they're taking up 40%, in some cases 50% of the panel. Yeah. I'm looking in, in particular on the page with the where he's back to being Bruce Banner and he's yes. take, kind of taking charge. Uh, yes. <laughs> that's this. I, I would say not. You know, you said of the panel. I would say about 40% of that the page, page yeah. is word balloons. <laughs> that's that's a lot of lot of dialogue in a very small place. That's. That's why some of the uh, the fight scenes or the abomination knocking through the wall is 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 almost a respite, you know, from the from the heavy reading, reading, reading. You know that that that, that four page or that four panel fight scene at the end is a is a nice it's a nice literally a change of pace, change of pacing yeah. of the story. It's a lot of, you know, again we got a ten page story and we have such extreme contrast in it without it feeling right. without it feeling like you know it doesn't belong. Right. It, it, it's, Agreed. I guess, it's a tribute to the pacing of the story itself that you could have this scene in there where there's all this dialogue and and, and expository information, and then you can cut from that to a to to four panels in a row where all you have is you know onomatopoeia, and uh, <laughs> and 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 that's good enough, and it feels natural. There's a natural flow to it. Right. So, I don't know. Any anything else you have on this one? No, that's good. Great right. it for me. All right. Well, as I said, the the Gilcane art in it looks a little rudimentary. It it's not. It it doesn't have that. It, in fact, it's far from slick looking. Uh. It but it but it's very powerful, very compelling, and and yes. very dynamic as far as I'm concerned. Uh. And that that includes the interior art and the cover. Uh. I think the cover is is fairly iconic. Uh, you know, the only thing it, it, that would make it better is if it was a little, just a little cleaner. Uh, but I, I think otherwise it's, it's really solid. I, I guarantee you that I would buy this on the newsstand <laughs> for when I was a little kid or if it was tomorrow. So, or, doesn't matter. Or, or, or now you'd buy the T-shirt or the poster. Exactly. So I'm, I'm going to give this an A-. minus. It could be a little better, but it's really solid as far as I'm concerned. The interior art. I kind of feel exactly the same about it, so I'm going to say A minus on that as well. And the story, there's a lot of story packed into a little, into a few pages, but it flows fairly well. It's quick reading, a lot going on. Uh, the, the the biggest weakness is there's just somehow some of the leaps of faith that you have to take. And we started talking about this earlier, and we really didn't get back into it. That he just happens to have all of this machinery around. There's there's the uh, what do they call it? The gamma electrodes oh, right. <laughs> that they put on him to revive him. And then he has 
this other thing that he can turn on. It's going to make uh, the abomination, you know, it's going to compel him to come over there and he can't resist the pull. And then as soon as he gets there, he's got this other thing that he does, that he can spray at him or shoot at him. That's going to weaken him. So, you know, it's like, where do these things come from? And how, how did, you know, how did he know they were going to work? And, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's a little wonky. <laughs> that said, it didn't really bother me when I read it. So I'm going to say B plus on the story. And overall, I'll give it an A minus. We are on the, a similar page. Uh, I'm probably going to be a little lower, sort of uh, across the board. For me, the cover's a B. Uh, I, do, I like the abominations pose more than I like Hulk's. Something There's just something a little awkward in the way he's standing there holding his fists up. But it does tell you that a fight is coming, that this is a bruiser versus bruiser issue. And I wish that the two combatants didn't have pretty much the exact same sh- same shade of green. You know, that's not the cover artist's part, but if there could have been some other different thing in the in the shadowing or shading, differentiate them a little bit somehow, but it's a solid B. The art inside to me again, similar to you, A minus. You know, Gil Kane, he's a solid pro and he's doing solid pro work here. The expressions, the poses, all dynamic, the storytelling. The story itself, it's a B for me. It's a, l- a little too wordy for my tastes now, but that was the era. And I think, sort of as you were saying, in, in maybe not these exact words, but this is Stan being Stan. Yeah, pretty, that's pretty in, much you know, in, in the telling thought. the story and finding those quote-unquote science gadgets lying around and, and, and so on. And I have a personal bias. I'm not a big fan of Rick Jones. So the fact that he was a critical part in saving the day, mm, you know. <laughs> Um, and then sort of that Stranger X Machina ending a little bit, again, a little bit of a deflating of the fight. Uh, Hulk could have had a victory, didn't quite have the victory. So B, though, again, that actual last panel of, as you said, the Hulk walking away in the distance saying something, uh, pull it up here to the effect of, I'm, I always walk alone or yeah, Hulk must be free. Hulk must go. And where the Hulk walks, he walks alone. That's classic right there. And, and then that underneath that, classic. where it says, next, the new chapter, <laughs> meaning Stan had no idea what the next exactly, was going Exactly. So overall, I'm in a good mood, B+. Plus. Yeah, so we're, we're in the same boat. Enjoyed it, yeah, enjoyed it a lot. And with that done, we'll move on to your book. And at least yours features a green protagonist as well. Did I lose you? So, yeah. A, a lot of people have made that comparison. No, I can't. <laughs> I can't say that with a straight face, no. I cannot. This is Astro City 17 from Wildstorm slash DC slash homage comics. Cover dated May 1999. I've got a couple of confessions here, Paul. First confession is I've never read any Astro City until Mm -hmm. earlier this year. And for me, part of it was it was so many different publishers and imprints and volumes. And even though it's one of those series you hear great things about – it, I just never really knew where to start. Right. And so I saw these. I picked up three. They must have been three for a dollar, three for two dollars, and something like that. And, you know, this was one of those first three that I picked up. Um, and I think sort of in the back of my head, I sort of knew that the issues were largely standalone. Uh, this one uh, uh, pretty much is. And, you know, I, I knew that that was what Busiak was doing. But still, something about that that collector mentality of me 
I wanted to start at the beginning, but I didn't know where the beginning was. Again, it's a t- it's a title that he's carried to some extent from publisher to publisher. Right. And so a little hard to know where to jump in. And then my second confession is I had narrowed down my selection for this episode down to two books, and the decisive factor was that I was able to find the makings of a synopsis online for this one. <laughs> so this is a we we, we embrace laziness here <laughs> back to the bins. Somewhat modified, adapted version of what I found on something called HeroCopia.com, and we have an Alex Ross cover showing, as Paul said, a green-clad figure. This is the Mock Turtle, shooting up from a river against a backdrop of a, a huge bridge in a large metropolitan cityscape. This is The Voice of the Turtle, written by Kurt Busiak, of course, with art by Brent Anderson and Will Blyberg. We start in a bar, and Dr. Martin Chefwick is downing a pint dressed in a large green turtle outfit. I'm better known as the Mock Turtle, and I've got a story to tell you. While growing up in Brixton, London in the early 60s, Martin had been fascinated as a child by stories about children being transported to magical lands. He spent hours trying to find ways to get to Oz or Wonderland or Narnia, presumably in an attempt to escape his otherwise dreary life. And as a result of his odd, let's say, geeky behavior, the socially inept boy was sort of bullied a lot throughout his life and considered kind of feeble-minded by his dad, who could not recognize that his son was actually extremely bright, inquisitive, and a well-read boy. Martin met Lucia, his red-headed neighbor. He was immediately smitten, but his feelings for her blinded him to her true personality and motives. Even his children, she manipulated him and turned him into an unwinning accomplice to her petty crimes. As Martin grew older and accepted that the fantasy worlds from his childhood were not real, he threw himself into science, escaped the world via math and physics and engineering. Think Tony Stark with less luck with the ladies. Lucia, the ginger temptress, continued to use poor Martin, gleaning whatever scientific knowledge he would share to make her burgeoning, and still secret, criminal career easier. Unaware of her true motives, his crush continued. In an attempt to impress her, he spent years creating an all-environment suit that would allow him to become a daring adventurer and explorer. That's the turtle suit. When he learned that his firm had hired an accomplished diver to pilot his invention instead of him, he stole the suit. Now on the land, he modified it to embark on a life of crime as the Mock Turtle, a persona modeled after a character from Alice in Wonderland. He joined forces with some English crime lords like the Headmaster and the Toph, clashed with heroes like the Lion and the Unicorn. But he always viewed himself as a dashing rogue of a high-tech Robin Hood primarily stealing from the rich and then giving most of his ill-gotten gains to the red-headed Lucia, which doesn't exactly count as giving it to the poor, does it? He turned down her offer to become Mock Turtle's partner, preferring that she remain innocent and pure, and he clueless and naive. Frustrated, she created her own secret identity, the Red Queen, and began the process of building her own criminal empire. She even obtained some advanced armor and convinced the still clueless boy with the crush on her to rebuild the suits to her specifications. When the Red Queen threatened the territory of another crime boss, Clever Dick, no jokes, he assigned Martin 
the task of tracking down and defeating the Queen. And he did just that, systematically dismantling the Red Queen's operations and routing her forces. But when he visits Lucia to celebrate his victory and brag about defeating the Red Queen, she reveals, we all knew it, she is the Red Queen. He was the only person who doesn't know. He just never saw it coming. Enraged that her scheme had been foiled, tired of flirting with the naive guy anyway, the Red Queen unleashed her enforcers, those armored dudes that he had rebuilt for her. She ordered them to kill the Mock Turtle, and they relentlessly pursued him all over the world. Eventually, he fled to Astro City. Assuming that these chess men, uh, beasts, these, these uh, mechanical monsters, were responsible for a recent string of neighborhood murders, an ex-con in the city named Steeljack rallied the locals who ambushed and actually defeated those armored attackers. The lesson, never give up on your dreams because you never know just when or how they'll come true. The end. Had you read any Astro City before this, Paul? Well, this this is one of my, uh, my blind spots in my collection because yeah. I have... A decent number of issues of Astro City that I've never sat down and read. Right. And I was picking them up primarily because at the time I was somewhat infatuated with the Alex Ross artwork on the covers. Right. And I never sat and read them. And, and I clearly should have because I really do respect Mark Wade as a writer and why I wouldn't, you know, why I wouldn't take it that next step and sit down and read them. I don't Kurt. know, honestly. Kirk and and frankly, I mix up Mark Wade and Kirk Busiek <laughs> a lot because they they in my mind they are they are very similar sure. writing styles and personalities. They're both very uh, laden in the history right. of comics, whether they're doing Marvel or DC work and and working that history into things, or if they're doing something like this and kind of creating their own history but still having that feel of you know, like a of a long existing world. Right. Uh, they they both real. I I really enjoy both of their works. So there really is no excuse for me to have not read these books. Yeah, like I said, uh, I, I I picked up three recently. This was one of them, and, and sat down and read them. They were all from this run. I think something like thirteen, seventeen, and twenty two, or so, you know, some random dis disconnected ones. And uh, they pretty much told three separate independent stories. There is some very minor. Uh, through line to it, uh, but nothing, uh, n nothing that's so substantial that you can't sit down and read one of these and get a full story. And even sort of going in with, you know, expectations because it's a very well thought of series, and 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 not even in a controversial sense. You know, not even some people love it, some people hate it. You know, my impression is it's a generally well thought of series. And and even with that, I was. Very pleasantly surprised uh, mm -hmm. with yeah. This, uh, with, this is a very enjoyable yeah, story with with all three of them. And you know, for again, for a one-off, I just I, th I think that's a skill, you know, in and of itself. And I'm sure if you the more that you read some of these names, some of these characters, you know, that that sense of world building um, grows even more and more. You know, but even just as a one-off, it's about a 26, 27-page story. You get a lot of world building in it. You know, you get the sense. Um, you know that that these stories do take place in a uh, in in a larger context. But you you also get a lot, at least in this story, a lot of character moments. Right, right. So I, I agree with you that that's that's some skillful writing to give you the character moments and the world building in the same you know same effectively one shot. Mm -hmm. uh, 
but then you have Steel Jack in this one, and the next issue focuses on him. So, like you say, there is a thin thread running through right, it. Right. But uh, you know, you, you sympathize with the character, uh, and you want to see more of him. So it's almost there's almost a little bit of a tease effect to it. Now I don't right. know if Busiak did revisit characters as he went along, or I, if this is it. You never see the Mock Turtle again. I don't know. Yeah, I I I think you do, um, but not for long. I mean, I think I, you know, in in general, you know, the couple of the other ones that I read, they seem to very clearly be, you know, one and done, you know, sort mm-hmm. of telling the entire history of this particular character. I, I also have had a, a little bit of a rubber band effect with uh, with Alex Ross, too, where where when he first came to prominence, I was very infatuated with his work. And then eventually I just came to see him as nothing more than a poster artist. Right. Sure. So. You know, then there was less less desire for me to uh, to read his his work mm-hmm. or read read things that he was involved in, and it's kind of unfair in this case because all he was doing was the covers anyway. Right, and and even you know this one is not really one of those traditional you know, photorealistic portraits. Some of the other ones uh, were you know do sort of fit into that category, uh, you know, but this one is is really not that. And that I my. You know, my view on on art is basically I'm a not just a story first guy. I'm almost a story only guy. I'm basically the exact opposite of Scott Gardner in terms of viewing art versus story in in in, in my comics. And so right. for me to even notice art and pay attention to art, it has to be so different. It has to be Kirby. It has to be Alex Ross. You know, there are only a handful of of artists that I can recognize. You know, when I listen to, to you or to other podcasters, you know, look at look at a panel and know immediately not just who the penciler is, but you can tell, you know, so-and-so is credited as the inker, but on this page, I think it was this other person. That just blows me away. I have no, no context for understanding, visualizing, seeing any of that in, 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 in terms of art. It has to be so distinct. Mm. And so Alex Ross is one of the guys I can recognize, right, because his, his style is so distinct. Um, so generally, I, I I I tend to be a fan, but I certainly can understand um, a weariness to his work, you know, seeing his work. Yeah, I, I think I've gone through a metamorphosis over the years where I went from a story first guy to appreciating the art more as I got older. I right. I, I, I used I, I to can understand that. Yeah, I used to be more in line with what you're saying, where I didn't know one artist from another. I just knew what stories I liked. And and somebody would stand out to me, uh, you know. Usually they would stand out to me because I didn't like them, mm, as sure, opposed right. to artists that I did like. Uh, certain artists, and and there's there's some of them who I would say I grew to appreciate as I got older. And and I think uh, Gil Kane, who we discussed earlier, is one of them. I didn't really care for Gil Kane's art when I was younger. I didn't really care so much for Gene Colan's art when I was younger. And these are artists that have very distinctive styles who might stand out more to you as a reader. Uh, along the lines of what you're saying. And then as I got older, I, got, I grew to appreciate their art styles much, much more to the point where I, I really enjoy just taking in the page and looking at the art style and seeing how they told the story and seeing how they depicted the facial expressions. So I think despite that appreciation, though, I still lean slightly more towards story than art. Yeah, I, I do think in doing, you know, you know podcasting for three plus years now about comic books pretty steadily. I have grown to appreciate the art more. I still can't identify, uh, but I, I can at least understand 
what I like about a certain page or panel. So I'm, I'm get developing a little bit of that vocabulary, but that is still far behind my ability to express what I like about scripting or what I like about a story. Though, just to some extent, what I've come to realize also is those two things are, they're not two separate things as I used to think of them. You know, the art is part of the storytelling and, and, and vice versa. So it's, it's not that, you know, yeah, you, it's, we, you know we, we're obviously, we, ironic, I should say that, because we do grade them separately on Back to the Bins. You yeah, know, but, um, you know, but they do, the, those two things are, are intertwined. And I'm, I'm sort of starting to understand how that works a little more. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, to some extent, comics are a unique medium. Yes. Because of the way they intertwine the artwork and the story and everything. There's stories that you can tell in comic books that wouldn't work right. on the big exactly. screen. Right, which, which, and is wouldn't why, work which is why you have show. to do yeah, it's why you have to do some uh, adapting when you're going. And, 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 so, and they wouldn't work in a prose novel either. Exactly. Because sometimes you need exactly. the, those visual images. So, yeah, like you say, it would have to be adapted and... I think sometimes that gets taken too far sure. because I think there's there's sometimes there's a lack of trust for the source material. And I think sometimes that's the criticism that's laid on, uh, you know, on the Batman movies of late and, and the Superman movies of late. Right. And, and I don't want to get into all the criticism of it all, but I do feel that sometimes they don't trust the source material and they're embarrassed of the source material almost. And, and that I, I do have some problem with. Right. I mean, not to, give a negative example, but instead to give a positive example, I think one of the strengths of the Winter Soldier movie was how it took the core concepts of the Winter Soldier series that Brubaker did and made the necessary changes to move from comic to uh, to a movie, but told basically the same story in a different format. I think it's one of the reasons it was so successful yeah. is, is, and, and... is that it, 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 it hewed so closely to that. Again, you can look in and say, well, it changed this and changed that and changed this. But I think in the grand overview, it, it lived up to that title a lot more than, say, Days of Future Past did, which basically took the title as a jumping off point to tell its own story, almost. I, I think to contrast that, you look at uh, – well, not even to contrast it, actually, to, to emphasize it further – but I look at the up- upcoming Doctor Strange movie that's coming out, mm-hmm. and I was very impressed when I saw Benedict Cumberbatch is wearing an outfit very similar to Doctor Strange in the comics. Right. And I think with other producers, pr- other production teams, they would say, "Oh no, we can't do that. That that looks too silly," and they and they would just scrap that and just put him in you know a turtleneck or something, and 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 it would lose something. I, I think you had to, you have to trust the material. And it, and it, and and it it doesn't mean you have to adapt a particular story or a particular storyline either. You know, you can sort Not of you, yeah yeah you can adapt the feel of the character and you know, pick and choose different uh, different things. Use the source material when it aids the the motion picture and don't use it when it doesn't. Uh, I think I think there's a wealth of material out there though. So oh, absolutely. I, I I do think you know it's worth. Maybe even cherry picking a little bit from this story, yeah, a little bit from exactly. that story, and, and you see that sometimes in, in some of these uh, these adaptations where they they you know they, they take some of the best parts of some classic stories, but they don't necessarily adapt a whole story. Exactly right. Uh, right. An, issue, an issue we covered that's actually going to get posted in two weeks. Uh, we uh, we talked about a, a fight between Thor and Iron Man with Cap involved, <laughs> and it seems like that is that portion of the first Avengers movie 
to some extent that they tried to recreate that a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they didn't necessarily just do, just adapt that story, but they kind of worked it in. Right. And it's whatever, a five minute scene, <laughs> right. maybe 10 minutes at the most. And you, you see that a little bit more with the TV shows when they have so much time to fill, you know, 20, mm-hmm. 20 hours of content instead of two hours of content where they're mining in some case doing some deep pulls on characters or storylines or concepts or relationships. And, and again, putting it into the blender a little bit and uh, often coming up, coming up with things that are pretty good. Yeah, I agree. I think, uh, well, I think you see a lot of that in the flesh. Yes. Yeah. And that's, that's probably why it's my favorite comic movie out right now, <laughs> comic TV show yeah. out right now, rather. And I, I, and I don't think I'm unique in that choice. No, no. So, uh, so Astro City any, 17. Yeah. Um. <laughs> any more specifics on this one? Um. I don't. I think the interior art is fairly solid, but there's something about it. I don't know. Something about it that, that's that's just a little too 90s-ish for me. That, uh, to some extent, that that when I look through that, that's almost the coloring. Maybe I'm not sure. There's something about it. Yes, that does have the feel of what mm-hmm. was going on in the late 90s. Is that Burt Reynolds? Can't quite put my... <laughs> I think it is. Could I think be, that's that's. Yeah, wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> I mean, but you know, I think fun- fundamentally the story. You know, any of us geeks can definitely come under the thrall of a of a, of a fiery redheaded temptress. That's the lesson. That's the lesson. <laughs> I know Shag's not here, but she is hot. She is yes. hot. I got to give you that. <laughs> So like I said, in, in terms of the cover, because I'm a fan of Alex Ross, even when he's not doing sort of that, his uh, photorealistic shtick. And I think this has a good sense of design. It's not an action shot. That's sort of the problem. But I think in Astro City, it's often not an action shot. But I do wish it told a little more of the story. Yeah. You know, the cover. It's nice sense of design. I like the colors. I like, silly as it sounds, I like the Astro City logo. You know, I think there there's some nice elements of it, but yet it, it it doesn't tell me enough of what's going to happen. So to me, the cover's a B. Uh, inside, again, I thought the art worked uh, reasonably well. I do like that when they showed both Martin and Lucia over the years at different ages, and that's not easy for any artist. So pulling that off even reasonably well, I think, is... Uh, is an accomplishment, so I give the interior art. There's something a little 90s-ish about it. Uh, I can't quite put my finger on it, other than maybe it's Burt Reynolds there on page six. Um, <laughs> he would be more late 70s or 80s. I don't know. Um, so I give the internal art eh, B-ish, and to me the story's an A. Full story, beginning, middle, and end, and that's a, almost a lost art among comic books. So I appreciated it here. So A minus, B plus. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, the covers, it's well drawn for what it is. Yeah. But what and, is and, it? <laughs> and, and I would criticize it if it was just a poster image, which is, again, that's that's something I liked about Alex Ross and then eventually grew to dislike. Sure. Uh, it's well drawn, but I just don't – I don't know what, what he's trying to get at it. I, I mean, the cover almost – calls out to me like it's showing the kind of unfettered joy of being a superhero. Mm-hmm. And yet the story doesn't right, right. doesn't give you that at all. Mm-hmm. 
So it's a little misleading. And uh, it's just, I, I don't know, it, it's, I don't think it's particularly compelling. It doesn't, it's not something you look at and say, oh, I got to read the story and see what this is about. Right. So I, I think it, it fails a little bit. So I'm going to say a B minus on the cover. I don't think it's as, nearly as strong as it could be. The interior art, you know, it's got it's got a little 90s feel to it that I don't like. And I, I think some of it is just the kind of jumping around, like where I don't feel like it's telling a story that I can follow that well. Right. So it's the, the individual renderings are mostly pretty decent. Uh, some of the facial expressions look a little, little, almost a little silly. But overall, I think it's decent in the interior art. I'm not crazy about the coloring, but I'm not going to penalize it for that. Now, now you... You do say that some of the the, you know, the faces and those sort of things look silly. Remember, this is taking place in Britain. Oh, okay. So, they, so it's, it's probably a, accurate. So dental work is is non-existent. <laughs> uh, I mean, you, sorry, you Andy and Steve. You've seen pictures of the Leylands. Come on. <laughs> well, and Angela's a beauty, <laughs> as is Anya. So, and, and I'll just leave it at that. Uh, I, I I don't know. It's, I go back and forth on the art. I'm going to say I don't like the storytelling. The individual drawings are okay. Don't like the coloring. I'm going to say – I'm going to give that a B- minus as well. And the story is really strong. I think they, they in a one-shot, they gave you a character. They make him compelling. Uh, and, and you know, they, they make you like him even though kind of he's a villain. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to agree with you and I'm going to give the, uh, the story an A. So overall, I'll give it a B. A, uh, what is this? So I gave it B minus, B minus, and an A. So I'm going to just give it overall a regular B. That, that sounds about right the way I do my grades. I like it. <laughs> yeah, if, if one of your students. Uh... Well, it depends. If I don't like them, it's an A, B minus, B minus, it's a D. No, wait a minute. <laughs> well, let's, never, you know, we, never. We've actually, we've had that discussion a few times on the show where, where like somebody will give their ratings for the individual things and then say, well, what does that work out to? You know what? It works out to whatever you decide it works exactly. out to because it's your rating system. You know, the, the, the whole can be worth more or less than the sum of its parts. It doesn't necessarily have to average out when you're done. Well, you know, in, in, in listening to the episodes of bins, of course, I'm a faithful listener. It's part of my Saturday routine um, is – and it, it really didn't affect me too much here, but you know, I figured I would, you know, well, I, would, I was going to pull a fast one. I'm sort of spoiling my next appearance if I if I have one that, you know, I was going to give the cover and the art maybe a lower grade and the story a high grade and then give it a high grade. Because I said, well, you don't have to weight these things equally. Exactly. You know, that's I mean, to me, like I would, you know, to me, the, the cover might be a quiz. The inside art might be a test and the story's the final exam. You know, well, in, in, especially in terms of how they're going to be weighted for migrating, especially with what we were just discussing, where like you value story over art. Right. So it could have really, really beautiful art. But if the story is weak, exactly, you're going to probably give it a lower grade than Scott will. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and for me, in terms of the cover, I mean, I guess I picked this up because I saw the cover, but I picked it up because I saw the words Astro City on it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that, that's what made me buy it. You know that I that I I'd heard such good things about it. Figured this was the time to take the plunge. You know, it it it, it wasn't that I looked at the cover and said, "Wow, this is so compelling. I have to figure out what this picture means." Exactly. Which, I, I, which is not how I look at a comic book cover, generally speaking. Well, if I'm but if I'm picking up a series with characters I've never read before. Sure. Right. Right. 
it's either going to be on the strength of the creative team that I feel, you know, that I, I, I know who they are and I appreciate their work. And I think I trust that they're going to give me a good story or because I see the cover and it looks compelling or because I'm desperate to read a comic and there's nothing else available. <laughs> those those, those are like the only, only three criteria. Or eh, it's only 50 cents. It's only a quarter. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. So maybe somebody it's sent only me a free box of comics and this was in. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know. There's, there's, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's sometimes it's hard to, uh, to, to say what, what compels you to, to read a, you know, a, a given book. But, you know, this, this one, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought it to the table because again, I've had a stack of Astro Cities in my collection for a long time now because I was buying these as they came out. But, you know, I never, never read it. So I'm glad you, you got me to because maybe, maybe I might now pick up a couple others and read them. There you go. I am a little curious, and, and this is. I think a strength of the book, they have basically a cameo from the character Steeljack in here. And then he, the next issue centers on him. And now I'm a little curious to see what the story about him is going to be like. So I might pick that up. Yes. I I I think there is some small. Well, actually I do have it. I pick it up. By pick it up, I mean actually take it out of the box. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's some small threads that tie the stories together in general, but they tend to be, you know, you know, one-offs in a pretty maybe in a consistent world or in a cons- in in you know taking place in one you know uh, like I said consistent uh, story universe and then that's sort of how I understand the series as well as well as my scant experience reading a handful literally when I look at my hand less than a handful of comics <laughs> if if it a handful if I were to lose a couple of fingers. <laughs> But I don't teach. Uh, but I, I don't teach shop, so that's okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins@gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Hey, everybody. What's up? Dr. Bill in the house.